for this episode. I say that every single week because every single week I have somebody great coming on the show. This episode in particular is kind of a special episode for us. Um, not only are we going to be talking about East Palestine, as the title will reveal, but w- this is timely, right? This is what we're talking about. But interestingly enough, we have been on almost like a hazmat kick here for a while now. As you recall, about a month and a half ago, I was at the Hazmat Symposium. I had the president on there, uh, Chief Jonathan Lamb. I had uh, Michelle and Sai also on there as a panel. We were talking about Hazmat from the uh, perspective of both um, the Hazmat responder as well as emergency manager, what they can do. Uh, We had, and if you're watching the screen here, um, uh, Dr. Ali, uh, who wrote Walk Through Fire, just on this podcast last week, talking about the Waverly train disaster. I've talked about, uh, I had an episode just a couple weeks ago about building a next level sit rep and what to do and how to track incidents. We've really been on this um, this thought process here for a while to help emergency managers get up to speed. And funny enough, not funny enough, um, after doing a lot of those episodes, we record those in January and then East Palestine, Ohio happens. And all of a sudden, here we are. And I thought it was only appropriate to kind of change our schedule a little bit and say, hey, let me bring on an expert here, a hazmat expert who's been on the show before and can speak competently to kind of the process here from an emergency planning, a response perspective, maybe even a recovery perspective. He's been all over the globe. He is one of my great friends and truly an expert in hazmat response experiences eric helpenstell i want to introduce him to the show right now eric thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me on john it's good to see you again and just for like the sake of everybody you know for your credit i i texted you and i said hey you know what do you know about this can you help me out we want to do this uh on short notice and so thanks again for making the time for for us and to really help the field of emergency management learn more about you know appropriate actions from an expert perspective I appreciate that. Uh, just so you know, I haven't been on site in, in Ohio on this incident, but I've talked to a few of my uh, colleagues that have been, and uh, I'm pretty well up to speed with what, what I can talk about. Well, I haven't been to every tornado in the world, but Certainly. if somebody asks me what happens yeah. at a tornado, I can tell them what happens. So, yeah. um, and, and you really have the chops. Um, well, the last time that we talked about Hasman, I think you were I think you were in Italy in a... I was in Georgia yeah. working on the Golden Ray. Uh, Golden Ray. Uh, no, no, no. Between oh. the podcasts, there was yeah, an yeah. incident you're telling me about in Italy, right? Like you really do go over the place, or your company yeah. goes all over the place and helps out with these hazmat cleanups, right? Yeah, that was a refiner. That was a refinery incident. Uh, fire after shutdown of, uh, of a chemical refinery. That's wild. Um, you are not so secretly because of this podcast, probably the most interesting man in the world for everywhere you go and the amount of things that you've done and helped out. We've talked about uh, Exxon Valdez uh, incident before. I'm sure we'll talk about that again in this episode. But just for the sake of trying to form the conversation to help what's happening, we, we've all been watching from afar. A lot of us have a lot of questions from both a hazmat and an EM hat, You know, putting those different hats on. Can you explain to us what happened in East Palestine with the train disaster and kind of just walk through the incident for us? Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. 
The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue, and collapsed and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at l3harris.com right now. Instinct Ready Kits are awesome, compact, fully loaded, and easy to place around your office, school, campus, warehouse, wherever. I keep a quick pack in my vehicle and one at home. Imagine Instinct Ready fully loaded Stop the Bleed Kits in every school and office. Get Instinct Ready Kits and training at instinctready.com. Okay, let's jump back in. Sure. As you know, we have to move chemicals and materials and everything in everyday life around the country. It has to get from where it's either produced to where it's going to be end user might have to get moved from the Gulf of Mexico off of a tanker to a refinery in Ohio to the plant that makes the finished product in Oregon. So every day we have materials in motion, whether it's by truck, whether it's by barge on the rivers or along the coast, tankers uh, going internationally, trains. And in this case, uh, a train of 149 cars, uh, a Norfolk Southern train in Ohio, clacking along, doing this thing every day that a train does uh, experience a derailment. And uh, I think 38, 38 of the 149 cars derailed, what they call decoupled, ended up just like pixie sticks stacking up right on the right on the train tracks or wherever the gravity takes them at that point. Yeah, pretty rough. Uh, I mean, I, I would even know like when you show up, it's like, okay, like what now? And because of the book that I just read, you know, Walk Through Fire, yeah. now I kind of have a general idea. But let's say that the tra- just in general, right? Like the train derails. Mm-hmm. What are actions step one, two, and three to make sure that people are not impacted by that train derailment? Sure. Well, let's ba- let's back up just a second and talk about the train itself, about the safety measures yeah. they have in place and how the um, some of the instruments they use. So, sure. Back back in the day, you know, 50, 60 years ago, a train track was literally just that. It was gravel. Uh, it was rail ties, and it was rail on top of it. There wasn't a whole lot of technology to go with. As incidents happen, you know, reactive nature that we are in America, we build better and better systems to prevent this from happening. One of the things that uh, leads to common tra- uh, train derailments is bearing failure. That's where the wheels are turning, holding up that 60, 50, 60, 70 ton load. Mm. They put sensors every, you know, every few thousand yards or even uh, just a mile or two apart on the tracks. It's called an HVD, which is a hot box detector. That's li- literally looking at the temperature of the box that goes by. You know, in range, in range, in range. Another one is the HWD sensors. It's looking for the hot wheel detector. It's literally looking at the bearings, scanning it, you know, hundreds of times, thousands of times a second as it rolls by, counting them so it knows which car it is. And it's literally looking at the temperature of the bearings and the wheels. It knows that at this point, at this point of this section of track, you know, 99% of the trains, this is the wheel temperature. We know what's range. It's going uphill. It's going to be a little cooler because no brakes are being applied. Mm. Going downhill, it might be a little warmer. So they have these tens of millions of data points of these wheels rolling over these things every day, telling them what is in range and what is not. In the East Palestine incident, um, uh, the, the, hot, the hot wheel detector had detected the train was something's awry. They stopped the train too late. It was already derailed, and the, here we are dealing with the mess we're at. Hmm. Yeah. So like, it, it wasn't the track. It was the... It was the bearings. That's what, that's what it's looking like. I'm looking at the uh, on my other screen here. This mm. morning, NTSB just came out with the preliminary report. It's mm-hmm. only a four-pager, and it's literally just a who, what, when, why, what. It doesn't say why. It just tells you the temperature at this such and such point was this. Three minutes later, the train is on the ground. Does uh, is, Are those reports um, publicly available? 
They are. You have to do a search for it because it's only it's only four hours old, five hours old. Mm-hmm. And I will for, I'll forward the link for that uh, offline. Yeah, in a minute. maybe we can put it in the show description for those yeah, who are yeah. wanting to learn more about that. But you know, I think of um, almost funny enough, like my brain goes back to river gauges, and we're yeah. watching the stages of, of river, and we can tell how much flooding, what's going to happen, mm-hmm. based off of these river gauges. And we can make plans and assessments based off of the heights there. Um, the obviously the reason that they have these sensors is there is because they want to see if the train der- is going to derail and what what causes that. Um, what are some of the other reasons for, like like putting those sensors in? Like, um, has do you know of any instance? And you might not, and that's totally fine. Do you know of any incidents where like okay, this is out of range, and so they get the train to stop immediately? Have they ever prevented a, a derailment based off of that range data? Absolutely. They're not going to publish your numbers, but talking to my maintenance friends at Norfolk Southern at Union Pacific, mm. they tell me this happens hundreds of times a quarter. Well, the uh, operator will get a, a, a notification over over temperature. He will immediately stop the train and deal with the issue, whether that's that could be as simple as just stopping the train and going to verify it by hand, you know, ground truth it with this little laser, this little laser mm. temperature. If there's indeed a fire, as you know, you, you catch a fire at the incipient stage, it's easier to put out than when it's roaring. And a train, <laughs> yeah. a train rolling along the track at you know fifty-five miles an hour plus is going to have a lot of wind blowing that fire. So they have they have they have definite uh, you know stage one, stage two, stage three. Stage one is you know slow down. Stage two is stop and verify. Stage three is you know take immediate critical action. Mm. Yeah, funny enough, I heard a um, a talk one time, like a presentation, <clears throat> and uh, somebody said it was explaining thought process, and yeah. um, he said. What do you, uh, Richard G. Scott, he said, what do you do when you see a child run in front of your car? Yeah. And most people say, stop. He said, no, You first you take your foot off the gas, then you put your foot on the brake, and then you swerve out of the way. Like, you do, like, there is a process yeah. to all of this. And and I, I don't think people realize that. Like, I, like there's, there's things to play. Like, yes, um, rail derailments are the worst, and uh, communities are impacted. But two, it's it. Some some articles, some headlines make it sound like it's black and white. Like they yeah. either do everything or they've done nothing. But as you just called out, there's a lot of things in place, and unfortunately, there's still a de- derailment. Right? Like Murphy's law is real. Um, Certainly. So um, most likely, it was caused from that issue. Yeah. Right. We have a lot more to learn. When it, when it tips over, I thought they. Uh, they did a controlled burn because they were afraid of it exploding. Is that correct? Like, what was yeah, the process? So, really I'm after? looking. I've got the download the manifest of what was the 38 cars that are derailed, cool. and I'm I'm looking at things like vinyl chloride stabilized, poly propylene glycol, which you know, uh, antifreeze, diethylene glycol, uh, polyethylene beads. You know, it goes on and on. All this stuff is used in manufacturing of something around the country somewhere. Yeah. These five cars, in, in particular, um, the poly the vinyl chloride is used to manufacture PVC, you know, all the PVC pipes you see, or some mm-hmm. of the, the, the plastic type furniture you see in, in your backyards. Yeah. Stuff is shipped as a, it's shipped as a liquid. It's a gas, normally a gas at atmospheric pressure, but you can compress it really easily and turn it into a liquid and it's shipped in these cars, wherever it needs to go. Extremely mm-hmm. combustible. It burns really good and it uh, builds up pressure. These train, these train cars are built to a specification that uh, will prevent uh, the pressure buildup by flaring off. Mm. That's, incum- that's incumbent on the car being upright. Once the, car is, <laughs> once the car is on its side, the vent is no longer exposed to free atmosphere, 
free out free uh-huh. space inside the tank. So it's got liquid pushed up against it. Well, to prevent to prevent the content spilling out, what do you do? You put a ball in the you put a ball in the uh, uh, pressure vent that will plug the plug the valve if there is a uh, rollover that prevents the poly that, that prevents other, other problems, prevents the whatever contents are from spilling out and leaking all over the place because. Now you're trading one evil for another, but now you throw the other element of fire. Let's throw some fire in there for the mix. Car's on its side; it can't vent pressure. Um, the the vent is plugged, so you know it can't uh, can't drain the pressure. Fire is impinging on the material. You've got all that free metal space that's just acting as a heater, heating up the contents. Contents are getting hot; they're expanding, building up pressure. Um, that's ba- that's no bueno. You don't want uh, what's called a blevy, boiling liquid, expanding vapor explosion. Uh, mm-hmm. Makes for a fantastic uh, effect in the middle of the desert when you're watching it, but uh, as an as an example or demonstration. But in an occupied area, area you don't want five five rail cars of volatile liquids reaching vapor point, being held back by a steel container, just to be unleashed, uh, instantly vaporizing itself, catching fire, and you know blowing the smithereens out of what's what's that end of the town. So before we get into like the specifics of this yeah. one. From a general perspective, we're we're almost going to start at the end and work work our way backwards here. Sure. Um, there's like what's that clip from? Um, oh my gosh, Good Guys, where the he's being yeah, interrogated. Yeah. And he's like, first you start at the end, then you go back to the beginning. Well, we're going to do one of those. Okay. Um, in terms of your your expertise, your knowledge of hazmat incidents. Sure. If you were essentially there, would you have done it the same way? Did you think that they were within the scope of prudence? Or you say, hey, for whatever reason, right? It could be sure. something as terrible as intentional to negligence to just a lack of knowledge. Is is the the criticism about the incident within scope, or are you say, you know what? In terms of response and mitigating other disasters, were they within scope? Sure, you know, it's hard to second guess uh, the fire chiefs and the responsible parties' actions until after the fact. You know, it's easy to criticize that way. Yeah, but knowing that these guys are career professionals, knowing what they have in hand, the information in front of them, I'm sure they chose the path of the uh, uh, not the least resistance, but the lesser of the two evils. You know, yeah. what do, do we do? I put guys up front. Do I try to fight this fire, uh, knowing that if it does explode, it's going to you know kill how many people? Do we get yeah. automated equipment? Do we get the robotic uh, the robotic uh, water water cannons? Those are available, but you know how far out are they? Can you get them in time? So you have to stack all these uh, resources that are available. What do I have? Risk a little to save a little. Risk a lot to save a lot. Oftentimes, there's not much you can do. Well, I will say that uh, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, uh, n- nobody was uh, immediately impacted by the train derailment. Nobody was nope. like by explosion. And uh, comparing it to, again, this book that I just read, they did lose like half of their responders. Uh, the fire chief, his life was lost. They lost yeah. other firefighters. They lost, I believe, police officers, townspeople. And from that immediate trauma perspective, uh, thank goodness that nobody died from this incident. Um, uh, from an emergency management standpoint, from the coordination standpoint, um, from an outsider, it feels like the response was slower than it should have been. But I, I always know it's more complex than that, right? Like, yeah, we always yeah. try to, like, dilute it down to, like, oh, black and white. But it's not. And um, try to understand that. So from uh, East Palestine perspective, I guess the, 
the question I have is the two questions of the response. What should happen in a response from an educational perspective? If, sure. if this happens again, what should we do? And then the other part of that is um, like, so what? Like, so what to East Palestine? What should East Palestine do now? Because those yeah. might be two different things. So the sure. first one, I guess. Like, if somebody has a train derailment, there's been a lot of hazmat incidents in the last couple of days. What would your advice be from an emergency management coordination perspective? What needs to happen in order to maximize success? Sure. So the first thing I'm always worried about is the people. Make sure the people are safe, you know? After, after the people are safe, we can start attacking the situation. And that is knowing what's on it. You know, you have to have a manifest because a train can haul anything or nothing. Every one of those cars could be absolutely empty and clean or brand new, or could it be it could be hauling the most volatile of chemicals or, or you know, uh, poisons. It could be be hauling it's literally it could be hauling cases of explosives. So getting the manifest on any incident and knowing what uh, what you're dealing with is is the first step. Do you think the a local emergency manager? has that level of knowledge of even to like think of, I need to get the manifest. Everybody talks about the, well, why didn't they know about this? Why didn't they know about this? One of the reasons they don't, whether it's communicated or not to the, you know, the local areas, there's somebody that knows in local area what's coming through, but mm. uh, this stuff is so dynamic and constantly changing. What's coming through this morning is not going to be the same at lunchtime. It's not going to be the same time at dinner time. Um, mm. Delays happen. Uh, sometimes freight is rerouted. You, the train that was expected at noon is no longer coming because now it's taking a southern route to avoid congestion, track maintenance, any issues. So unless you is have there... somebody, yeah, somebody, unless you have somebody full time watching these reports, you would never know what's coming to your area. Another way, there, another issue is you don't want to disseminate this stuff publicly. You can't have it on an open face website because that just makes it a target of opportunity. Yeah, that was going to be my follow up about the security of it. Like, yeah. not only does an emergency, like when, when I think of local emergency management, uh, you know personnel and no discredit to them when you're a team of one in a yeah. rural county you got it. and uh someone says why didn't you think about the manifest i don't know i didn't even know what number to call like from the rail yeah. like I, sometimes they don't know what the starting point is and there's an education piece to that it's like sure okay if we, we we all make believe that we're experts in all, all hazards right uh, this is a hazard that they need to be aware of sure but and it just turns of like the knowledge base of like who that makes the connections. But I do ask, I do wonder about the security of that. Is the security issue justified? I mean, like the crimes of opportunity are there. Sure. And there's definitely yeah. chemicals on there. I wonder like, I wonder if, if somebody knows what's on there, if uh, they will actually be able to act on it. Sure. Well, the, the one person that always knows who's, what is on the train is the conductor himself and the engineers. You're always mm -hmm. going to have that list up front. So even if the local EM doesn't have it at the county office, uh, the fire chief knows to get to the front car. That's where the list of what's going to be on there. So perfect. The, so step one, get to the conductor, right? Get, to the get conductor. the manifest. Yeah, conductor. Uh, you, we've already we've already addressed life safety. There's going to be people out there. If there's fire involved, you know to evacuate. You know, firefighters know what to do. They just initially show up in an incident. They know. Barring everything else, I need to get people out of the way. I need to start doing structure protection. I need to start doing this and that until something mm. says, hey, man, this uh, I got orange orange smoke. I've got purple flames. Um, this something is different here. You know, A fire is a fire until it's not. And the firefighters know what to look for, knowing yeah. that uh, this is not right. This is not a run-of-the-mill incident that I'm showing up. I mean, it's not a structure fire with black smoke and you know the furniture is burning. The house is fully involved. You know, we can deal with that. We do that hundreds of times in our career. 
It's just when you throw the the complete randomness of what a train car, what a train is made up of, and the individual cars is now mixed, uh, that it becomes yeah. issues. But knowing so, that, there's always going to be that list up front that the uh, the responsible party can give to the you know the first on scene, the first incident commander. All right. So your volunteer fire chief. Yeah. You you have this emergency manager. You guys get to the front of the car. I'm just walking through the whole thing just because mm-hmm. I'm hyper curious. You can talk to the conductor. He says, mm-hmm. hey, there's some really bad stuff on here. Here's the manifest. You got to get people out of here, yeah. right? Um, what What is the immediate next step? Is it evacuations? Is it determining the scope of evacuations? Um, and then, like, my only my, my logical thought is figure out who evacuates, communicate with those who need to evacuate, alert everybody else within a wider range. Is that is that roughly correct or is that incorrect? Well, to a point, I mean, you know, uh, life safety being what it is, the firefighters on site are going to begin their assessments. Mm. One problem with the train is the incident might be back here, but the, the engine's going to be a mile and a half ahead, you know, depending yeah. on what the derailment is. If I'm reading the numbers right, the, en- the engine's decoupled and went down the track a mile. So, Oh, gotta, geez. Yeah. So uh, they went down a mile after they decoupled after they decoupled because they don't want the rest of those cars that are affected to become part of the problem. So SOP is to break where you can break where you can't you've derailed. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't pull them back on the track and fix it. Decouple where it's safe and then move what you can out of the way. I mean, that makes sense, right? It's consequence management, right? Get the rest of the stuff out of the way. Certainly. So you got to find, you got to find the right train tracks because sometimes they split in towns or hit a rail yard and, you know, where's, where's the conductor? Where's my engineer at? So they're not going to be hard to find. They're going to be making calls to you as well. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, trying to get all that, that figured out. Okay. So what's next in that stop process? And in ter- terms of East Palestine, do you, do you, do we actually know what happened next when, because there was a moment of time between the, the release, the yeah. controlled release. Sure. Uh, I think it was like 48 hours, right? I think it was, so. It was uh, two days. I think they didn't do the release until the 5th. The fifth, yeah. Um, which again, timing. I mean, forty-five years ago, this this train disaster that changed everything in a small sure. town. Now you have a, and I'm from Ohio, so when people talk sure. about East Palestine, Ohio, I've been to East Palestine, Ohio, or at least been through it. Uh, there really isn't much there, you know, um, and maybe less likely now. Um, that that forty-eight hour period, uh, they're obviously not relying on hope. What is no. going on during that? What actually went on during those 48 hours that, you know, you could assess would probably would have happened? Sure. Let's take you back about uh, geez, what, it's seven years to the Mosier, Oregon, uh, uh, Union Pacific derailment that I worked on. That was my last derailment with a fire that we worked mm. at the height of the uh, uh, pipeline controversy, whether we build this pipeline through the, you know, through the Dakotas or not, the Keystone Pipeline. Yeah. This oil is still moving. It's just not going through a pipeline. It's going on oil trains. You know, which dozens of those mm-hmm. a day are coming out. Train, you know, you, as we talked about offline, you take a, a small risk and multiply it by thousands of evolutions, even tens or hundreds of thousands. That small, that small ratio becomes bigger. Well, it happened in Mosier, Oregon. Uh, Union Pacific train derailed, decoupled. Uh, the cars started burning of, uh, of semi-refined product and some crude oils. Local department, there's nothing they could do. They're, you know, it's a volunteer department, maybe a couple, you know, half a dozen paid staff. What are they going to do with their their couple of Pierce fire engines? Like, not much. So we had, their initial response was to stop traffic on Highway 84, get the people out of the way, and call Portland, you know, their next operations. They had an air, air, 
they had airplane uh, crash trucks on the, the Portland airport come to help put this fire out and work this fire, contain it. Decision was made at that point. We, got, we can't contain this. We're going to let it burn. All the cars have breached. Uh, there's no there's no chance of them to blevy or, or to explode. At this point, we're it's right next to the Columbia River. That decision was made to let it burn. That was the least of the bad options. Let it burn, and then we deal with the mess after. Hmm. The East, East Palestine, I don't know the size of their department, but they may have the similar problems. Like you mentioned, they could have a volu- all-volunteer department. What kind of resources are you getting? One thing I do know is that for Norfolk Southern to ship any product on any of their rail lines, they have to have pre-established plans. You know, you work planning in your career. Uh, you know that there's shelves of these things sitting around that if the train derails here, these are our response contractors. If it derails here, here's our set of response contractors. We have a pre-established org chart of who's on who's incident commander this month or this week or this quarter uh, for any incident and just trickles down from there. A lot of times, though, these things happen right at the cusp of the point or wherever it's at that uh, you could, your furthest ways you could possibly from contractor A and contractor B trying to get these resources there. So, yeah, I no matter, Murphy's law. Yeah, no matter. Uh, the family and I used to talk about moving, but I was like, where do we move for my career? Because no matter where I move, it's never going to, I'm never going to be working in my backyard unless I'm at home preparing or winding down from an incident. So, no matter what happens, it's going to be somewhere else. So, no matter where you have your equipment, your personnel, your contractors for response, it's going to be somewhere else. Uh, I highly suggest uh, and recommend that you move to St. Louis, Missouri, yeah. um, because you can things. hang out. <laughs> yeah, good thing. Uh, there's a really cool family here with two yeah, little kids and yeah, awesome life. Um, yeah, in terms of well, you bring up this because you brought this up in our last episode, it makes me want to go full circle with it. Um, trains versus pipes yeah pipes are, versus pipe. pipe. Like a... once installed a pipeline is by far the safest way to move any product that pipeline that runs from from uh, uh anacortis washington down south through central oregon it pumps diesel it can pump diesel in the morning uh unleaded gasoline in the afternoon uh road tar uh, on a tuesday it could be pumping mm. all kinds of products kerosene and once installed, that pipeline can operate for decades or more, and you know, unless disturbed. It's only when you disturb something that you know things happen. That refinery uh, fire we talked about in Italy, a refinery will run for months, years, uh, multiple years without any issue until you try to change it. Until you want to change the state of it, it's just happily chugging away, heating oil, making whatever. Mm. It's not until you try to stop it to do maintenance on something <clears throat> or something. Uh, uh, something else changes. You want to make different products, so you have to retool. That's when things happen. The shutdown and startup of a refinery is ninety percent of the incidents. Same thing with a pipeline. It's happily chugging away, and once installed, it is by far the safest way. The second is by marine transport. You know, uh, oil tankers, uh, barges up and down the rivers. That's the second way. Third most efficient and safe way to move products is by train. Uh, mm. Fourth is overland truck, and the least safe way is just by bucket. You know, literally a lot of places still move products by bucket over hills and mountains, like Nepal. I was there a couple yeah. months ago with the daughter. You literally see guys carrying the five and 10 gallon kerosene jugs on their shoulders, uh, five gallon buckets of, of kerosene. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, but when it does go wrong, it goes horribly wrong. You know, eggs on Valdez. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, the Olympic pipeline uh, explosion. The pipeline was disrupted, disturbed. It leaked, I don't know how many tens of thousands of gallons of gasoline into a river valley. The fumes flowed downhill, found an ignition source, and unfortunately killed four kids that were playing in the valley. You know, that pipeline had been moving 
tens of thousands of gallons an hour for, for years at that point. That uh, when that shut down, they had to ship the fuel to Portland, Oregon, to the airport by truck. That put another like thousand trucks a day on the highways. You can do the math there from Bellingham, Washington to Portland of how many millions of miles a week that is of additional exposure. Yeah. Well, uh, and you know him too because we were in the same Georgetown program. Yes. You know, Doctor Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. who's been on the podcast a couple times, he talks about how um, the um, nuclear like if, like nuclear plants yep. it would basically solve like everybody's problems the energy of it it's clean it's good for the environment blah 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 um but people freak out because you know the when it, when something does happen it's yep. catastrophic but it's also catastrophic for that one area and not to dim, du, not to minimize the the impact of, of yep. uh environment and people and other things um, but it is exponentially better in terms of that perspective. And yet there's a lot of pushback. Sure. So people are actually opting for more dangerous options yeah. because it's maybe what they know. If you're going to play devil's advocate, you're a pretty smart guy. And you and I both agree pipelines are the absolutely the best. And then like walking down the thing, why are people pushing uh, away from, again, Steve Johnson, yeah. you know, nuclear power plants or pipelines that kind of stuff why do they push back on that i think a lot of it's, it comes down to nimby you know not in my backyard um pipe nobody uh, nobody wants a for the keystone pipeline it was all of the issues with the uh the, the native population there and the the grounds that they wanted to cross um, there's no yeah. cheap route you need right-of-ways that can take dec- that could take a decade or more to procure and get the an undisturbed path from point a to point b uh, you have the construction yeah. costs you have the construction uh disruptions that can often take years so until the pipeline's put in it's a huge disruption but once it's in you know it's going to be a sign along the side of the road do not dig here call before digging it's going to be a cleared right away through the trees that's that's you wouldn't know the difference i thought pipelines were above ground a lot of them are depending on where you're at uh like the uh the pipeline in alaska um the Uh northern the northern most of it is above ground to prevent permafrost from uh, sinking into the ground from the heat Southern uh, half, southern half is above. Uh, it's, it's a mix above and below ground. But it goes. It can go below ground. Yeah. So yeah. that's uh that's pretty fascinating to think about. Yeah. So okay. I know uh, it's kind. Of, it's kind of a. It's kind of a boring topic. But pull up on. Uh, Google it is anytime. not a boring topic. Yeah. Everybody's focused on this right now, and pull, you are the most interesting man in the world. So pull up. Pull up the map on Google of underground pipelines in America, and uh, it's just it's just a massive web of pipes, and these pipes. These products can be pumped from the Gulf of Mexico to uh, California, from the Gulf of Mexico to New Jersey, get refined into a product and pumped over to Ohio. Um, some are large, some are small, some are feeders, some are just dis- uh, tributaries. It's it's incredible. Is that one of the uh, options that people will most likely discuss after East Palestine is like, should we move this over to pipelines? Or th- is that not really within scope based off of the chemicals that were in- Yeah, so this... this- these, uh, the PVC precursors, you won't be able to ship those in a pipeline because it's just, it, it, you just can't ship them in a pipe. Not like that. Oh, okay. it, would, it, it would just plug the pipe. It would plug the pipe. Yeah. You'd, you'd make PVC pipes yeah. into more PVC pipes. You, you got it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, uh, uh, the vinyl chloride stabilized. It's only stable uh-huh. until you start messing with it. It can undergo uh, spontaneous polymerization, which creates a lot of heat. So it, there's other issues. You can't ship it in a pipeline. You're going to create issues. 
Okay, so uh, presumably, yeah, they clean this up. There's still a rail line, still millions yep. of cars every day. Um, let's move over to kind of that second half of the question, which was, now what? Show yeah. what from East Palestine. What is East Palestine actually going to do? Because there is a very famous, and it is pretty jarring to see this image of them blowing up in the plume and the em- environmental impacts and everything. Yeah. Uh, I did offline talk to, and this is for the kind of the audience sake, talk to engineers about how they can actually clean up the water. There are processes yeah. like a carbonated um, charcoal, I believe, yeah. stuff like that. And I could be wrong, but like what, what actually now happens? You've been at these massive cleanups. Absolutely. How does East Palestine move forward? If I'm a homeowner, do I, I would be nervous because I'm like, oh, my home value, my, you know, can I move? Can I do this? And they're poor. Like a lot yeah. of people are poor in that Absolutely. area. So what, as, I, what as now? you know, as you know, uh, money gets the representation and representation gets the actions from governments. And when you are underrepresented, uh, like a poor economic area, you're not going to get the attention you need unless you get an incident like this happening. For East Palestine to move forward, they're going to have to drill hundreds of, of bore samples or test wells. They're going to have to monitor those, figure out where mm-hmm. this plume of whatever they put underground is. One of the products uh, I was looking on here is uh, uh, petroleum oil, diethylene glycol, propylene glycol. All Both of those are miscible in water, which means they're just going to dissolve right into the water table. When I, when I show up in an oil spill, you know whether it's Alaskan crude or uh, you know, used engine oil, they mm. don't they don't mix with water well, you know. So right. it's, it's going to end up on the shore. It's going to float on top of the oil unless there's, there's auto oils that sink. But that's a separate problem, and that's the that's the the flyer. But the oil doesn't mix with water well. We have mechanical separation. You can literally centrifuge it. You can use weirs to suck it out of the water. You can literally use vacuums and suck it out of the water. Uh, we mm. have all kinds of ways. Uh, if you dump it on the ground, it usually doesn't sink far because it's still going to float on top of the water table. So you can just keep on scooping it up with a friend and loader till you don't reach any more oil. A lot of these products on this train, and one of the problems with any train is uh, the products can be anything. Um, a lot of this stuff is just going to go right in the ground table and it's going to sink down because it is lighter than water. Or, and this will so, so if it is sinking to the ground, if it is doing these things that you're saying, yeah. or drilling you know, hundreds of you know, wells to figure out like what, what's going to happen as if I'm living there, what are the priorities from response recovery perspective to help the individuals? Like what should be happening? Honestly, might not, but what's be happening, but what should be happening with those people? Should they be permanently evacuated until the water table is clean? Are they going to do like boil orders? Are they, is it like a Flint, Michigan thing? Like yeah. what, what is appropriate actions for them based off of that manifest chemicals, you know, that were impacting their lives? Well, in an ideal world, the responsible party would return it to as close to uh, precondition as possible. You know, is that what's going to happen here? That's what's going to happen on paper, but uh, in actual you know, practice of what you can, you do with a checkbook, you know, there's only so much you can do. There's only, there's, Literally, there's only so much equipment you can get on a site and so much earth you can excavate, but you're just chasing, you know, without without monitoring and knowing what you've got, that's the first step. So, I mean, it'd be premature for me to say what they should do or shouldn't do. Um, okay, so in this last part, because I know people are going to be asking me about why didn't you ask about that? So I'm, yeah. I kind of I kind of uh, kicked this up before we, um, before we started. started. There's criticism about the specifically the federal response and, and maybe even the state response perspective. It looks like there was some political back and forth that yeah. was happening. Um, 
I like I said, I served in FEMA. Yeah. I I I'm glad I was part of FEMA. I was on the national strike team. You know, national I'm at West is what they call it there at the time, and uh, I deployed out to very political incidents. Yeah. I've also deployed very very fast to some incidents that were not very big at all, uh, in terms of like the general population scope. Um, and this one seems like they didn't do that. And eventually, this you know FEMA sent out like a regional IMAT. And I was like, "Ooh, really? Like that was your that was like the best you got?" But maybe I don't know all the details, and I, I'm I'm sure none of us really do. Behind besides yeah. closed doors, from your perspective, uh, is this is there things to appropriately criticize, or do you think the media is blowing this out of out of proportion? Well, certainly, you know, after the fact, criticism is always criticism is always easier. But let me ask yeah. you this: You work for FEMA. Uh, how many shovels do you guys have, or bulldozers, or uh, or <laughs> excavators, or uh, you know, uh, how many of the absorbent pads do you guys keep warehoused? Yeah, what I said, you know what, what I would direct that to is with the logistics team out there, they would I'd be able to identify those resources, those yeah. contractors, a lot faster than somebody local who doesn't even know what a manifest is. Yeah, you know? well, that's well, that's my point. Is uh, if you go to fbo.gov and look up. You know, FEMA, 10, Region 10 uh, Rapid Response Contract. You're going to get a list of some of the best contractors in the world, like Ceres or uh, ECC Environmental. These are the mm. same contractors that Norfolk Southern and uh, Union Pacific uh, are using. So mm. the phone is already rung. And, uh, companies like Ceres are already on the way. NRC is, you know, the, the National Response Corporation, not the agency, are mm. already. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're already, yeah. Uh, they're already on their way. I mean, what? FEMA being a management agency, um, one of the problems with federalizing an incident is if you take command control of an incident, now you're directing actions. Um, who's writing these checks? Have, by federalizing, are are you spending Norfolk Southern's money, or are you spending federal money that's allocated on contract AG-104H on and on? Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, the taxpayers want their money back because a responsible party is clearly identified in 49 CFR as the responsible party. So I think when it comes to companies like if they're large enough to take care of the incident and they are making forward progress, I think it's no problem in having FEMA on site, watching them, making sure they're doing what they say they're doing, making sure that what can be done is being done. You know the difference when you get on an incident, whether it's like, man, this this is a complete S show. Yep. Or you show up. You show <laughs> wow, up. Thank you for doing that for the, the, the I hear uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Good yeah. Day. So there's, I've, I've shown up in incidents where it is complete. It's a complete crap show and uh like, yep. how are you guys not already dead and i've shown up in incidents where you just seamlessly integrate and things are flowing as smoothly as they possibly can it's you... so painful when that happens mm-hmm. you're like you don't even it gets hard to comprehend the level of incompetency and it's always for the dumbest reasons it's like Absolutely. not even like it's not even for the reasons you think it is it's like oh they're not trained or this it's like yeah oh no like you were you were pissed about something like juvenile, yep. like yeah. Yeah, I've seen turf wow. wars between agencies uh, hold up an incident. Yes, I have too. Yes, yep. I've seen turf uh, wars are real, and they're real right now, big time. Yeah, yeah. and a war is one on the stomachs of men. I kind of paraphrase that, as you know, but logistics mm. is key to doing anything. You know, I've seen I've seen some logistics officers stopped by just the smallest of tissue paper barriers. Well, I called the trucking company; they don't have any available to Monday. It's like, well, who else did you call? You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean I, we have Google. There must be, you know, how many tens of thousands of tractor trailers and operators wanting to jump on a load. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move this stuff. That, 
Do you think that's what's been happening here a little bit, or do you yeah. think? I don't. I don't think so. I think uh, I've seen a lot of stuff in motion, a lot of equipment moving. So I think that uh, going back to your original question, uh, could they federalize it? Certainly, but that comes back to who's paying the bills, who's directing operations. Yeah. After after things settle down, Norfolk Southern, you know, the lawyers going to get involved. Norfolk Southern is going to want to minimize their losses, damages, liability. Uh, maybe the feds did overspend. Maybe they did do it the wrong way. Maybe they uh, increased costs exponentially for no reason by just doing it inefficiently. Um, that's an argument they're going to make, and that's going to take years to settle in court. The last set, the last suit for the Exxon Valdez spill was settled in 20, 2016 or seventeen, I think. Didn't that happen in the eighties? Yeah, like eighty eight or eighty nine. I think eighty oh eighty nine. Yeah, eighty nine. And then uh, is BP oil st- the the two thousand ten incident? Is that still in court? I, it might I be, but not n- not nearly as much because I know that BP got ahead of it. They got ahead of the game. Yeah, they they did do a, a settlement. I re, I recall the time yeah. thinking what happened there because it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it should have been. Yeah, you know it's um it's hard not to become emotional about this stuff. Yeah, you, know, like you yeah, see the people impacted. People. Yeah, and as a guy who has gone out to a lot of this stuff, it's like mm-hmm. it it does make you wonder. Like you see the actions from afar, and it's like, wait, FEMA did what, or yeah. the state did what? Like the, yeah. the, what's happening at the local level. And I like understanding. And so th- again, thank you so much for coming on because you're, you're adding such like a cool, cool head here. It's like, this is what's really happening here. One of the things that people always forget, and this is for our audience is there is the, uh, ideal situation as you called out. And sure. then there's the reality and, uh, the reality is often mixed and it's, uh, usually not good, better, or best, but it's bad or worse. Yeah. And um, it, it definitely sounds like, obviously, this was a bad incident. Not sounds like we know it was a bad incident. Um, but it sounds like it could have been a lot worse, too. If, so, if something had gone boom, if there's that explosion that yeah. happened and we lost responders, this would have been so much worse in so many other ways. And, um, you know, I'm not giving any credit to uh, the train lines, and I'm definitely not getting given any credit to... Um, that federalization, that perspective, because I do have my own personal criticisms and I'll take that to myself. However, um, this sounds like a lot of logical steps were also taken from responsible parties. And we have to do, I mean, your call out of like, who's ever responsible is paying for the stuff. Somebody has to pay for it. Yeah. And it's better that the trains pay for it if they cause the disaster. However, they are going to, do bare minimum anybody would anybody would try to see how they could mitigate their losses uh, as unfortunate as that might be so um eric thank you again so much for your time for like this last little call out here for just a second um do you have any final thoughts considerations ideas for you know how many thousands people listen to this uh, podcast your thoughts that can help them as they move forward i think the best thing to do in this situation is to give a little more time i mean this incident this incident is still ongoing um Mm -hmm. Wait for some final after action review to get done, and uh, you know then the real criticism can start as far as what the trains could have couldn't done. I can say that 149 cars is a big train. You know, 152 once you add the engines in. Yeah. Uh, colleague asked me what why don't they break this up into smaller trains? You know that way it's you know got smaller smaller events. Like well you just have more evolutions. You know you took mm. instead of 150 cars in one train now you got five trains of 30 cars. You've just got that much more traffic to deal with. So. Yeah, good point. More places for something to happen. Absolutely. Hey, 
this is actually kind of random right at the very end here yep. the tracks you yeah. see these videos of the trains like moving like you know yeah they're you know at a club at night you know what i mean um is that justified from what you see in rail rail lines are the rail lines really that bad across the u.s or is it time to update or are they are they probably fine uh there's some places that the tracks literally look just like a couple of lines of spaghetti on the ground uh, up and down oh up and gosh. down um yeah. i've seen i've seen some i'll send you a link to a youtube video i don't know if you can put the link up yeah but the tracks are that's it's an offshoot it's going it's a siding they call it that goes to a factory that's rarely ever used they get one train a year of you know a dozen cars of lumber they would never take a train down a track like that if it had any type of chemicals hazardous materials in mm. this case it's just lumber it's in the puyallup washington area but the tracks are so old, so ill-maintained that they have an engine dedicated to it. That's just a piece of crap that mm. if it does come off the tracks, it's easy to fix. If the cars go off the track, okay, it's lumber. It's uh, we're just going to spend all afternoon picking it up with our front end loaders. Um, mm. But generally, the best tracks are in the desert where it's nice and flat and straight. It's uh, when you get around, uh, you know, where, the, where there's a lot of people, congestion of trains, that uh, the tracks need more maintenance. You know, that's where it, that's where it gets neglected. So that's a great uh, ending call out there. It's like they are aware of what what's on the track. Yeah. They are aware that you know, you know what should go on the track, what shouldn't. Yeah. Um, again, Eric, thank you so much. Uh, you know, um, your company. Do you want to do a really pitch for your company on the way out here? I'm pretty solid. This is your show, John. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, if anybody wants to look up Eric's company, I'll put it in the show links. Eric is a world-renowned, at least at my perspective, expert on hazmat and hazmat responses, especially from a fire perspective. Every time he comes on here, it is knockout for information and knowledge. We always get really good comments. If you got something out of this episode, and you should have, you know, you really should let us know in the comment sections on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Instagram, wherever, and uh, say, hey, like, I've been looking at this. This makes me think about manifest. This makes me think about the, the planning process. This makes me think about evacuations and coordinating with, you know, incident commanders from fire and doing all the things that you can do to coordinate uh, a better response recovery and also the mitigation side of it, too. Um, you know, really, uh, every episode, we ask for that five-star rating and subscribe. But it does mean a lot. It means a lot to us. It means a lot to our guests. And quite frankly, when you learn something from this podcast, it, it helps you move forward. So please like, subscribe, and comment, and we'll see you for the next one. Peace. Thanks, John.